All right. Um, so again, it gives me pleasure to um, introduce uh, Connie Benson from UC San Diego. Um, she's going to give us, I think, a very uh, quick overview of uh, CROI 2016. Uh, and there was a, a large amount of new data that was presented, and Connie does a fantastic job of summarizing those. So come on up. So thank you again, Ron. And uh, I'm going to start with just moving on. My financial relationships and learning objectives are in your syllabus, so we're going to go right to the introduction. I want to start with the caveat that CROI presentations related to cardiovascular disease, antiretroviral therapy, and new drug development will be covered by other speakers this morning, so I'm going to focus on some of the presentations related to epidemiology and the treatment cascade, pre-exposure prophylaxis for prevention of transmission, complications of HIV and antiretroviral therapy, opportunistic infections and malignancies, and if we have time at the end, I'll give you my take on some of the take-home messages from those presentations. So moving right into epidemiology, um, one of the presentations that got a lot of press attention was the lifetime risk of an HIV diagnosis. And this was a presentation from the CDC using national health surveillance mortality and census data from 2009 to 2015 to estimate the HIV lifetime risk of a diagnosis. And these are data generally used to compare the burden of disease across populations and look over time periods about where we stand with our control of the HIV epidemic in the U.S. And these data overall estimated that the lifetime risk for an individual in the U.S of being diagnosed with HIV was 1.05%, and this translates to about one in 96 people in the U.S. will have an HIV diagnosis during their lifetime. This represented a decrease from 2005, which is good news, but the bad news is that men still outnumber women in terms of overall risk of an HIV diagnosis at every age group, and in particular, the highest lifetime risk is among black men, with a risk of 1 in 19 persons versus females, black females, 1 in 46. And this slide just shows you um, graphically the data that I've talked about. And just to highlight the point here, a high bar here on the right-hand side of the graph represents the lowest risk, and a low bar here, the highest risk. And as you can see, this is black men and black women have the highest risk among people in the United States of having a HIV diagnosis during their lifetime. Here, one in 20 and one in 48. And the lowest risk for women are among white and Asian women and among men, um, Asian men and Caucasian men. And over time, these numbers have been reduced or improved but still significant disparities with regard to racial and ethnic groups. This is also from the same presentation looking at the highest risk estimates by geographic distribution, and this is one thing that hasn't changed, the overall representation of highest risk groups in the southern and eastern part of the United States, although as you can see, California is still up there in terms of overall lifetime risk of an HIV diagnosis. Moving on to talk a little bit about the treatment cascade, this particular presentation relates to 
that graphic depiction we've all seen of the bars related to the treatment cascade, the far right bar, meaning those individuals who've had HIV diagnosed, who've gotten into care, who've been started on antiretroviral therapy and looking at overall rates of viral suppression. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> These data were ta taken from the Medical Monitoring Project, which evaluated trends, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> trends from 2009 to 2013 in a re nationally representative population of individuals in medical care in the United States. And from over 23,000 individuals, they did interviews and medical record abstraction and demonstrated that the proportion of these individuals who were suppressed with viral loads of less than 2,000 copies per, 200 copies per ml at their most recent test increased from 72 to 80 percent with largest increases among that key demographic of 18 to 29-year-olds, although trends increased for all age and racial ethnic groups. And interestingly, the proportion who were suppressed at all tests in the previous 12 months increased from 58 to 68 percent. And these data, I think, were very encouraging in telling us that if we get people into care, started on antiretroviral therapy, we're gradually improving our ability to fully suppress those patients long term. And moving on to pre-exposure prophylaxis studies that were presented at CROI, there were three very key presentations. The first we talked a little bit about at last year's conference, the Depivirine ring. Um, vaginal ring. This represents an NNRTI embedded uh, vaginal ring that's used very similar to a diaphragm. And this is a women-centered uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis prevention strategy. And these, this table summarizes the data from two large clinical trials that were randomized and placebo-controlled. The first of these, the ASPIRE study, was a one-to-one -one randomization. The ring study was a two-to-one randomization compared with placebo. And what you can see for the depivirine ring versus placebo in terms of HIV infections, there was a modest decrease in H the number of HIV infections associated with the depivirine ring, but the overall incidence of HIV was still quite high among these high-risk populations, and the overall protective efficacy was only 27% in the ASPIRE studies and 31% in the ring studies. They did some subgroup analyses looking at efficacy for women who were older than age 21, and I will have to qualify this particular one, although they reported efficacy of 56% in that subgroup in the ASPIRE study, they did exclude two sites that had particularly low adherence, which I don't think is really kosher in statistical terms. And I think the bottom line from these data, although older women did a little bit better, the overall adherence to the vaginal ring was lower than expected. The ring itself was stiffer than what you would see with the diaphragm. And when they looked at PK, they actually had less depivirine eluded into the tissues than they thought they would see in the overall study, and probably representing partially a partial exploration explanation for why they didn't see an effect in the majority of women using the ring. The next study that was presented is the 
long-awaited data from the cabotegravir long-acting nanoformulation used for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Now, the caveat with this study was that it was done in low-risk HIV seronegative men, and the primary endpoint was not prevention of HIV transmission, but safety, tolerability, and pharmacokinetics looking at overall cabotegravir exposure compared with placebo. The study was designed to have an oral phase of cabotegravir given orally versus placebo for four weeks, and then an injection phase where the men were given either 800 milligrams intramuscularly every 12 weeks of the long-acting cabotegravir or a saline placebo. This was given in, glute, in the uh, gluteal injections given every 12 weeks. And looking at the pharmacokinetic outcomes from this study, they demonstrated that both the peak, or C-max, of cabotegravir was higher and the trough levels, or C-min, were lower than predicted due to a more rapid absorption and release after IM injection than was predicted as the study was started. And this led to about 70% of individuals in the study having trough levels or trough concentrations less than four times the adjusted inhibitory concentration, 90%, against the virus. So this was a somewhat disappointing PK result from the study. They also demonstrated a fairly high rate of injection site reactions, although this re led to withdrawal from the study due to an injection site reaction from only four patients, although about 20% of patients said or reported that they were dissatisfied with receiving the once every three months uh, cabotegravir IM injections. So I think there's still much more information to be evaluated from looking at cabotegravir as a long-acting nanoformulation for PrEP. The last PrEP study was HPTN 069 or ACTG A5305. This was a study looking at Maraviroc for pre-exposure prophylaxis in men who have sex with men. Again, similar to the previous studies, the primary endpoint of the study was safety and tolerability in terms of treatment discontinuation. And the four treatment arms in this study were Maraviroc alone, Maraviroc plus FTC, Maraviroc plus tenofovir, and the standard of care uh, PrEP regimen of FTC and tenofovir. And looking at the overall results from the study, the adverse event rates were similar across all treatment arms. Premature study discontinuation was similar across all treatment arms. But there were five new infections seen during the one year of follow-up with a 1.4% annual incidence rate seen in individuals in the study. And the majority of those were on a Maraviroc-containing regimen. Uh, four of the five were, were receiving Maraviroc alone, and one was receiving Maraviroc plus tenofovir. And what you can see over on the right-hand side of the curve here are the drug concentrations that were measured in these four, five seroconverters. And with the exception of this patient, all of them had very low to non-existent Maraviroc levels. And that was considered to be a partial explanation for the seroconversion. I think we'll see more data from this study over time and perhaps additional presentations for next year's conference. Next, moving on to complications of HIV and antiretroviral therapy presented at CROI. Um, so one of the studies I'll start with 
is the overall effort to impact immune activation. As you all know, patients who are successfully suppressed on antiretroviral therapy continue to demonstrate levels of immune activation that may contribute to some of the complications we see associated with HIV and antiretroviral therapy. This study was an attempt to look at uh, aspirin as sort of a global anti-inflammatory anti agent and its effect on reducing overall background levels of inflammation. HIV-infected ind individuals who were on fully suppressive ART for at least a year were randomized to one of two different doses of aspirin versus placebo, and the primary endpoint were, was a biomarker change at week 12 related to immune activation biomarkers, in this case CD14, although D-dimer and CD163, uh, monocyte uh, immune activation marker, were also measured. And in addition, just to look at the impact of aspirin itself, whether it was having the functional effect on platelets that you would expect, was also evaluated. And what you can see, although you can't see the small circles or anything here, you can see the overall bars do not show us an impressive change. And But in the table, you can see that with aspirin in both doses, there was a significant decline in cyclooxygenase as measured by thromboxane B2, meaning the aspirin was having the antiplatelet effect it's supposed to have, but despite the activity of aspirin against uh, demonstrated in the study, there was no significant impact on T lymphocyte markers of immune activation or mononuclear cell markers of immune activation or any of the biomarkers themselves. So we're still left with in uh, where we have been before with no effective intervention to reduce overall inf inflammation in the context of HIV. Uh, next study, or next set of studies I'm going to review have to do with bone impact of antiretroviral therapy in HIV. The first of these was the Eurocita study in which they looked at a cohort in a prospective observational way. More than 11,000 patients were included in the Eurocita cohort and were evaluated and followed from January of 2004 to their last visit or death for over 18,000 patient years of follow-up in this cohort study and looking at any antiretroviral therapy association with fractures and with femoral neck osteonecrosis as two potential complications of bone resorption abnormalities. In the first part of the study, looking at any fracture and at osteoporotic fractures in particular, they demonstrated only one antiretroviral drug was significantly associated with risk of any fracture, and that was tenofovir, as you might imagine. Looking at ever used versus never used tenofovir, there was about a 40% increase in risk of fracture. Looking at patients who were on tenofovir versus those not on tenofovir, about a 25% increase. And there was no impact of cumulative tenofovir exposure, at least not in a statistically significant way over time. Looking at the risk of osteonecrosis, they demonstrated no particular effect of any of the antiretroviral drugs studied, although in an, adjust, an analysis adjusted for other variables, it looked like indinavir 
tenofovir and lopinavir, ritonavir might be associated with femoral neck osteonecrosis when it was adjusted for the use of other antiretroviral therapies in addition to these other risk factors associated with fracture or osteonecrosis, there were no significant effects of any of the antiretrovirals used. So bottom line, summary conclusion, tenofovir is the only antiretroviral therapy associated with significant um, bone resorption abnormalities. In an effort to prevent that, another study presented at Croy looked at zoledronic acid as an intervention to prevent ART-associated bone loss. In this randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, in 63 HIV in antiretroviral naive patients, they were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive zoledronic acid in an IV infusion on day one versus placebo infusion on day one after starting antiretroviral therapy with atazanavir, ritonavir, tenofovir, and FTC. The primary endpoints of this study were safety and laboratory measures, and looking at C-terminal telopeptide of collagen, a mouthful, but basically a marker of bone resorption, and bone mineral density over time, as measured by DEXA. And the summary conclusions from this study showed a 74% reduction in the biomarkers of bone resorption, and in blue here is the zoledronic acid and in red here, the placebo arm, you can see a very significant difference between the placebo and intervention arms there with regard to bone resorption biomarkers. And also looking at DEXA at the lumbar spine, you can see that the zoledronic acid had a significant increase in DEXA uh, measurements of bone function and bone mineral density at weeks 12 and 24 and 48 with similar changes, although not quite as significant, seen at the hip and femoral neck. So zoledronic acid was able to prevent the bone loss associated with a tenofovir-containing regimen. Likewise, tenofovir bone abnormalities are reversible in individuals who were receiving daily PrEP with a tenofovir-containing regimen. These are data from the IPREX study, the original study, of course, being a daily oral tenofovir FTC versus placebo, looking at prevention of HIV acquisition among MSM and transgender women. And a sub-study from that analysis of 498 participants who underwent DEXA evaluations every 24 weeks while they were on PrEP and then another DEXA evaluation at 24 weeks after stopping PrEP, and then again another 24 weeks later before they went on to an open-label extension phase of PrEP. Recovery of bone mineral density compared to placebo was demonstrated after PrEP was stopped. And these are just the graphic depictions here. In blue are the tenofovir groups, and blue and green were the tenofovir groups based on whether they had received uh, less than or equal or greater than 16 uh, weeks of PrEP. And looking at hip and spine, you can see that after stopping PrEP in all of the groups seen, the bone mineral density improved to the background rates that were seen in placebo, suggesting that the bone mineral abnormalities seen with daily use of tenofovir and FTC for PrEP were reversible when PrEP was stopped.
Next, I'm going to talk about neurocognitive dysfunction and impairment. This was a study that attempted to compare Maraviroc with tenofovir and their ability to reduce neurocognitive impairment in individuals who were receiving antiretroviral therapy. Patients were randomized to Maraviroc or tenofovir, and in a background of darunavir, ritonavir, and FTC backbone, they were followed with neuropsychological battery of 15 tests at baseline and week 24 and 48, and these were then standardized to a neuropsychiatric Z-score and a global deficit score, and in this study, a higher score means worse impairment. They were also classified as normal, mild, or moderate impairment at baseline, and then were followed over time. And what you can see from these graphs is that all patients had improvements in neurocognitive function with effective antiretroviral therapy. There was no difference between Maraviroc and tenofovir with regard to global scores. And those with moderate impairment here in green had, improve, had greater improvement or declines in their global deficit scores than those with mild or no impairment, suggesting that antiretroviral therapy, regardless of the type, if, if it's fully suppressive, can improve neurocognitive function. The last part of my discussion, I'm going to focus on opportunistic infections and malignancies. Um, there was one interesting study that looked at efforts to prevent cryptococcal meningitis. The study was done in a higher prevalence area than where we live now, where the prevalence of asymptomatic cryptococcal anagenemia has been estimated to be about 7% among HIV-infected individuals with low CD4 counts. This was a study in which cryptococcal antigen screening was done reflexively in every patient who was identified from 18 Ugandan clinics with a CD4 count of under 100, meaning that when they had a CD4 count sent to the lab, if it was less than 100, they were reflexively had a cryptococcal antigen test done on serum, and they demonstrated that the overall prevalence was 7%. They found 152 asymptomatic cryptococcal antigen positive patients, and then those individuals were evaluated with lumbar punctures to look for active cryptococcal disease. And for those who did not have active cryptococcal disease, they received preemptive fluconazole therapy with the loading dose first for two weeks and then a daily dose, in addition to starting antiretroviral therapy two weeks after starting preemptive fluconazole. And the study demonstrated an overall rate, despite receiving preemptive fluconazole, of 11 individuals, or about 7% overall, had progressed to cryptococcal meningitis within six months despite receiving preemptive fluconazole therapy, and those who were at highest risk for going on to develop cryptococcal disease were those who, at baseline, had cryptococcal anagenemia titers of greater than 1 to 160. And here you can see the six-month risk in terms of hazard ratio was about nine-fold if you had greater than 1 to 160 and 12-fold if your cryptococcal antigen titer was greater than 640. And overall, looking at mortality risk, 
and risk for meningitis despite receiving preemptive therapy with daily fluconazole at 400 milligrams, about 25% of individuals in this study went on to develop cryptococcal meningitis anyway. Now that may reflect uh, an adherence issue, but certainly those who were at higher risk of failing preemptive fluconazole therapy were those with higher serum cryptococcal antigens and lower CD4 counts in this study. Another study that was presented was the attempt to evaluate quadrivalent HPV vaccine in older HIV-infected individuals. As you know, the recommendation is to vaccinate individuals less than who are younger than age 26. And this attempted to look at uh, vaccine or placebo at entry week eight and week 24 in individuals who are HIV infected on suppressive antiretroviral therapy and older than age 27. They were followed from baseline and every six months with high resolution anoscopy, HPV serology and DNA subtypes, cytology and oral HPV with the primary endpoint being persistent anal HPV developing in those who did not have evidence of infection at baseline. One thing to point out in this study is that a substantial proportion of individuals already had high-grade lesions at baseline, about a third, and about two-thirds had abnormal anal cytology, and about two-thirds were had anal HPV types that included at least one of the four HPV types included in the quadrivalent vaccine. And overall, the study was stopped by the Data Safety and Monitoring Board for Futility, and basically indicating that there was no way they were going to prove their initial hypothesis of a decrease in HPV persistence over time or new infection over time in this population. So what you can see here is that by week 28, nearly 100% had seroconverted in response to the vaccine across all four HPV types included in the vaccine, but there were no differences seen with regard to persistent anal HPV, single detection at the last visit, or high-grade lesions or progression of high-grade lesions within those who were vaccinated compared to placebo suggesting that vaccination of older HIV-infected adults does not prevent anal HPV or improve high-grade lesion outcomes. The next study I want to present was reported from Canada, and this was a study looking at a prospective observational cohort of HIV-infected adults over a 20-year period looking at the annual incidence of invasive pneumococcal disease in HIV-infected individuals. And much like our experience here in the U.S., there has been a dramatic decline in the overall incidence of invasive pneumococcal disease in, as more individuals have gotten into care and are receiving suppressive antiretroviral therapy. But one thing to point out from this study is that you can't see this number here, but I'll read it to you the overall incidence rate for per 100,000 population was 45 per 100,000 population among HIV-infected individuals, and this remains significantly higher than the overall background rate of invasive pneumococcal disease among the general population or among the key demographic of 15 to 64 in their cohort study. Invasive pneumonia and bacteremias were the most common types of disease seen. 
the overall case fatality rate reached a peak of 16.5% from 2000 to 2004, but declined subsequent to that to 4 to 5% and has remained stable at that level uh, since that time. And the last study I want to highlight is related to uh, HIV-associated malignancy. You may recall from the overall publication of the START study, which evaluated immediate versus deferred antiretroviral therapy for individuals with CD4 counts of greater than 500, and that primary study results demonstrated an overall reduction in risk of cancer by 64%. In the overall study, the investigators then went on to do additional analyses hypothesizing that the reduction would actually be higher for those who had infection-related cancers, meaning Kaposi's sarcoma, EBV-associated uh, lymphomas, and HPV-associated cervical and anal cancers. And what they demonstrated in the study was exactly what they hypothesized, that act overall there was about a 76% or 74% reduction in risk of infection-related cancers in those who received uh, immediate versus those who received deferred who randomized to deferred antiretroviral therapy. This was a highly significant difference. And although there was a difference also in non-infection-related cancers, this was not statistically significant over time in the START study suggesting that the bulk of benefit received with regard to reduction in cancers was related to infection-associated HIV-related malignancies. So I'll stop there, just uh, highlighting a few summary points as take-home messages. We're continuing our progress toward achieving the goals of the National HIV and AIDS Strategy by demonstrating reductions in uh, lifetime risk of HIV and increased viral suppression in those who are in care in the U.S. There's still more work to do for women-centered PrEP and long-acting formulations of PrEP with some somewhat disappointing results from those studies. The future of Maraviroc for PrEP still remains uncertain. We're still searching for effective interventions to reduce inflammation and its potential consequences in HIV. We're making progress in demonstrating interventions that can reduce the bone abnormalities associated with HIV and specifically associated with antiretroviral therapies. We demonstrated at CROI this year studies that showed suppressive ARV, ART reduces HIV-associated neurocognitive dysfunction. Despite preemptive fluconazole therapy and cryptococcal antigen screening, failure of this therapy or strategy is likely with very high serum cryptococcal antigen titers and its applica the applicability of these data in a low-incidence setting remains uncertain. HPV vaccination of older in, in HIV-infected individuals was unsuccessful in preventing complications of HIV. Invasive pneumococcal disease remains an important OI, and certainly incidence rates still are much higher than the background rate in the general population. And the benefits of immediate ART initiation, regardless of CD4 count, are continuing to be demonstrated specifically for infection-related cancers. And I'll stop there and thank you. If you have any questions, please also feel free to come up to the microphones. 
And Ron, if you want to give me the cards, I can. <laughs> our, our illustrious program chair had surgery on his eyes and has some trouble with reading small print, so I'm happy to just take the questions myself. <laughs> okay. Uh, first question, when will the DHHS OI guidelines be updated? Um, those are updated regularly every six months. They're an online published now. Different parts of those guidelines are updated depending on when there are new information. We've had a number of updates for specific OIs uh, over the last six months on, in the online document, and there will be more to come uh, this June with new updates on mycobacterial infections, HPV, and a number of the other OIs. But if you look at the online document, you can see when each of the different OI data have been updated um, in the online version. Um, changes or updates that I'd like to share with you. Uh, I can't, I, I don't have all of those memorized for you, but as I said, the, up, the document is regularly updated every six months in the online version. So uh, feel, please feel free to look that up. Um, next question. In one country in Africa, up to 50% of new cases had K65R and M184B mutations. If this shift occurs in the U.S., would that make PrEP obsolete? Well, I think that's a question that um, we can't really answer right now. I think M I'll, I'll speak to the M184B mutation, and that doesn't uh, while it reduces the efficacy of 3TC and FTC, it doesn't completely eliminate activity. The K65R, of course, will impact tenofovir sensitivity. And I guess to the extent that new cases in the U.S. have not been demonstrating K65R or M184B mutations to the same degree, I don't think we're at a stage in the U.S. now where PrEP is obsolete. I think the, uh, those data, I think, will be covered a little bit more detail in Dr. Aaron's case presentations. Uh, so please feel free to get back to him about that as a question later. Um, now some of these are the Berlin patient ones. Uh, next, were there discussions of when there may be evidence available in regards to efficacy of TAF-FTC for PrEP? Um, there were no TAF-FTC presentations related to PrEP at CROI. I think TAF has only recently become available. Those studies um, using TAF as a replacement for tenofovir are underway, but no data were presented. Um, the next question also related to TAF, is there a new formula, with the new formulation of tenofovir, has it been shown to decrease the adverse effects that I've discussed? And I think, again, as I highlighted at the beginning of my talk, some of that information is part of Dr. Aaron's discussion. So I'd prefer to leave that question for you to look at after you see Dr. Aaron's case presentations. And I think, those are all of the questions. If there are no more questions, then I think we can wrap up and turn to the next speaker. So thank you very much.